0: first article is entitled, ATMs Get Scarcer as Consumers Shun Cash. That's by Jim Carlton. Then Sarah Toy has an article, New Tack on Kids' Diets, Fewer Limits on Sweets. Then Jesse Newman wrote, Snack Maker Now, Kelanova. Then Stephen Greenhut has an article, Insurance Companies Are Quietly Fleeing California. And we'll follow that up with an article by Candace Taylor, Pampered Pets Live in Doggy Mansions Dine on Tiffany Bowls. So let's begin with the first article, ATMs Get Scarcer As Consumers Shun Cash. The slow move towards a cashless society is helping to send the ubiquitous ATM into decline across the United States, presenting challenges for those who still rely on cash. After peaking at 470,000 ATMs in the United States in 2019, the number of machines has declined annually over the past few years, to 451,500 at the end of 2022, according to data tracked by research firm Euromonitor International. The reason? Many people quit using cash during the pandemic and haven't gone back, said Kendrick Sands, consumer finance research manager for the London-based firm. There was that scare that the virus was transmitted by paper plus the trend of just buying everything online, said Mr. Sands, who is based in Chicago. That dealt almost a death blow to cash, especially for younger people. Cash and checks are forecast to fall to 14% of total payments this year from 42% in 2010, with the most precipitous drop coming just after the pandemic started in 2020, according to Euromonitor estimates. Zack Allen, a 64-year-old retiree from South Carolina, said he withdrew about a third less cash in 2022 compared with 2019 as part of his conversion to putting almost every transaction on points accruing credit cards. I need those points for hotels, Mr. Allen said. More people are opting to send money digitally for money needs such as allowances, tips, and splitting bills via payment apps like PayPal Holdings Namesake Platform and Venmo and Block Incorporated's Cash App. That kind of behavior is likely to persist according to a Federal Reserve study on payments during the pandemic. The study documented a 12.4 percent jump in digital transactions between individuals from the first quarter of 2020 to the second People making those transactions for the first time jumped 18% over the same period. The pandemic accelerated the transition from cash to digital payments, but ATMs remain key to the nation's banking system, said Sarah Grano, spokeswoman for the American Bankers Association. Officials from the ATM Industry Association questioned the Euromonitor numbers saying that while the dispensers were hit hard during the pandemic, they see a rebound in demand for cash. It is still the payment method of choice for in-person transactions of $25 or less, said David Tente, the group's executive director for the United States and Latin America. ATMs revolutionized banking. First deployed in London in 1967, the machines provided a way for customers to access their money outside of narrow banking hours. When Chemical Bank rolled out the first one in the United States in 1969, it promised customers in an advertisement that it would never close again. Paul Volcker, a former Federal Reserve chairman, quipped in 2009 that, the most important financial innovation that I have seen the past 20 years is the automatic teller machine but their falling numbers mean less access for people who still need them. In Kansas City, Missouri, hotel bartender A.J. Barbosa said the standalone ATMs he relies on to deposit cash near his hometown and are less dependable. Those cash tips have to get in our account somehow and ATMs are usually how we do it, said Mr. Barbosa, 31. They are also getting scarcer in some places. In San Francisco, two of the four outside ATMs at a downtown Wells Fargo branch can be seen covered over as of a few weeks ago. In New York, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company last month set it close several 24-hour ATM vestibules early due to rising crime and vagrancy in them. Right now, the biggest threat to the industry is not electronic payments, but ATM crime," Mr. Tente said. A spokeswoman for J.P. Morgan Chase said the bank reviews its ATM hours on a case-by-case basis, and for a variety of reasons may decide to temporarily close some overnight. A Wells Fargo spokeswoman said the outdoor ATMs were closed amid declining usage but she added that the machines remain important both there and system-wide. Our customers are increasingly using digital channels and transacting less often at ATMs and in branches. At the same time, cash withdrawal amounts have increased over the last several years, indicating cash remains popular among customers, said the spokeswoman, Julia Tunis-Bernard. Banks are also adding more features on ATMs, such as the ability to conduct a remote video conference with a teller to replace the need for branches, said Brian Riley, director of credit advisory services at Javelin Strategy and Research. The ATM definitely is not dying, said Mr. Riley, who is based in Tampa, Florida. They do allow financial institutions to displace some employees. And now, new tack on kids' diets. Fewer limits on sweets. Crystal Gargus celebrated her youngest daughter's fifth birthday last month with a gooey chocolate cake covered in white frosting and rainbow sprinkles. The next morning, she served her five children the leftover slices at breakfast alongside fruit, eggs, sausage, and milk. Ms. Cargis is among parents, dietitians, and doctors who advocate giving kids more freedom over what they eat, including, at times, high-sugar, high-fat, and highly processed food. They said the approach helps children develop healthy dietary habits and protects against disordered eating or dysfunctional eating behaviors, which afflict more than 20% of children globally. According to a recent meta-analysis in the journal JAMA Pediatrics. We are trying to control our kids when in reality, they need autonomy. Ms. Cargus, who is a dietitian in San Diego, said. Ms. Cargus and her peers are pushing back against guidance from some pediatricians and public health officials that they say is too prescriptive and risks fostering harmful eating habits. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends a diet rich in vegetables, fruit, whole grains, and protein, while limiting the calories kids get from solid fats, added sugars, and sodium. The American Academy of Pediatrics in January recommended that physicians offer weight loss drugs to children with obesity, which is linked to many health problems in early life and adulthood. The reality is that weight is highly associated with a number of comorbidities. Weight loss can improve them, said Sarah Hempel, a lead author of the guidelines and a pediatrician at Children's Mercy Kansas City in Missouri. About a fifth of children in the United States are obese, according to the CDC. The rate of increase in body mass index, a screening tool doctors use to measure excess fat, more than doubled among kids during the pandemic. Many children aren't eating enough vegetables and fruit and have sugary drinks regularly, according to the CDC. Diets high in sugar and trans and saturated fats contribute to obesity, research has shown, which is linked to cardiovascular problems, diabetes, and other conditions. Sometimes kids need some external help in saying, Okay, you know that's probably enough, said Claudia Fox, a pediatrician and co-director of the Center for Pediatric Obesity Medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical School. But restricting appetizing foods has been linked in some studies to weight gain and higher body mass index in kids. Some researchers think children with restrictive diets don't develop the ability to recognize hunger and satiety, the state of feeling full. They often eat in the absence of hunger, similar to overweight adults, because those foods become a forbidden temptation. Proponents of more permissive eating said parents shouldn't consider weight when deciding what to feed their children. It's incredibly traumatic for a child to be given the information that because of their body size or the way they look or their weight, they can't be trusted with food, said Sumner Brooks, a dietitian and co author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater Raising the Next Generation with Food and Body Confidence. Diana Rice, a dietitian in Oklahoma City, said that eventually even sweet loving children will tire of junk food and gravitate towards fruits and vegetables, she said. We have to trust children to meet their biological needs, Ms. Rice said. That doesn't mean parents should give into kids every whim, she said. Parents should take the lead in planning, preparing and serving meals, but incorporate children's preferences, she said. Ms. Rice said she tells clients to allow kids to eat as much as they want at a meal and encourages parents with kids fixated on sweets to serve dessert alongside main meals rather than afterward. And now, snack maker now Kellanova Kellogg Company is christening its global snacking business Kellanova following a long tradition of companies borrowing from Latin as they rebrand themselves. By combining the Kel from Kellogg with a Nova, which incorporates the Latin word Nova, meaning new, the name reflects the company's past and its future, according to Kellogg. Kelanova joins a growing roster of Latin-inspired names, G.E. Vernova, Mandeles, Altria, that companies have devised as they seek to reintroduce customers to their products and services. General Electric Company borrowed from Latin last year when it announced the name of its power business, GE Vernova. A decade earlier, Kraft Foods spun off its North American grocery business to focus on faster growing snack brands such as Oreos, naming the company Mondelez International Incorporated which incorporates Monday from the Latin for world, Kraft said at the time. In 2001, Philip Morris Companies announced the name change to Altria Group Incorporated, which the cigarette and food company said came from Altus, a Latin word meaning high. It was such a daunting task because you are renaming something that is a household name. Kellogg's chief executive, Steve Klinolay, said in an interview. The Battle Creek, Michigan company is in the process of splitting its business into two, one dedicated to its larger, faster-growing snacks business and other foods, and the second to its namesake cereal brands sold in North America. The global snacks business, which is taking on the new name, will include brands such as Pringles and Cheez-It and North American frozen breakfast items, including Eggo waffles. It will also include Kellogg's international cereal and noodle operations, as well as its plant-based foods business. Kellogg announced this past June its plans to split, saying at the time that it would break up its business into three companies focused on snacks, cereals, and plant-based foods. In February, Kellogg said that it had explored strategic options for the plant-based foods unit, predominantly composed of the Morningstar Farms brand, but opted to keep the business. Kellogg's North American cereal business, which includes brands such as Frosted Flakes and Fruit Loops, will be named W.K. Kellogg Company in honor of the company's founder, W.K. Kellogg. Though their names will change, the companies will continue to use Kellogg's brand on all product packaging, Kellogg said. The new names will take effect in connection with the serial spinoff, which Kellogg aims to complete by the end of this year. Kelanova will trade on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol K, Kellogg said ticker and exchange details for W.K. Kellogg would be revealed in coming months. Kellogg said it solicited name suggestions from employees around the world, ultimately sifting through more than 4,000 ideas from nearly 1,000 people. It said the name Kelanova was inspired by submissions that included the word NOVA. It was literally a lightbulb moment, said Mr. Kalani, whose youngest son studies Latin but did not help coin the new moniker. It is a beautiful language. It's timeless. Kellogg's split aims to create more nimble-focused companies and marks a pivot from the food industry's year-long strategy of pursuing acquisitions and building scale. Some Wall Street analysts have said that dividing up Kellogg could hurt the separate businesses' ability to secure competitive prices using the larger company's purchasing power. Mr. Gallani said he rejects such ideas because Kellogg itself is devising the plan, relying on smart employees and strong, diverse brands. You're just going to have to watch us, and we're going to prove that we can actually do this, he said. And now, insurance companies are quietly fleeing California. The words California and crisis seem to go together as the state bounds from one attractable problem to another. The recent multiple flood-level storms in California brought attention to the Golden State's ailing levees, as an atmospheric river pummeled the low-lying Sacramento region a nearly endless parade of trucks carrying rubble raced to shore up an aged system. It would never dawn on the state's political leadership to invest in infrastructure improvements before near-catastrophic failures stress levies to the breaking point. Nor would it occur to them to invest in water infrastructure. Shortly before these recent storms, which brought nearly as much rain in three weeks as California had experienced in a year, the state was already facing another water-related crisis, a mega-drought that led to water rationing. Such a problem had long been predicted, yet until recently, the state didn't move urgently to improve new desalination plants or improve infrastructure. The recent floods and wildfire season have also saddled insurance companies with as much as $1.5 billion in losses. Insurance markets could weather these blows, but California's government-controlled insurance system won't let them. Thus, insurers are pulling out of the state or reducing their underwriting, leaving many homeowners dependent on the bare-bones of insurer of last resort. The state created, through insurance funded, fair access to insurance requirements plan. As Jerry Theodoro, an R Street Institute insurance expert observed in the Orange County Register, the number of fair plan policies has increased 240% since 2017. Car insurers are backing away too, Mr. Theodoro notes as losses increased 25% in one year, while premiums rose only 4.5%. That statistic offers insight into the problem. In 1988, California voters approved the ballot measure backed by tort lawyers that turned the insurance commissioner into a rate-setting czar. Proposition 103 requires the prior approval of California's Department of Insurance before insurance companies can implement property and casualty insurance rates, the department's website explains, the ballot measure also required each insurer to roll back its rates 20%. Prior to Prop 103, automobile, property, and casualty insurance rate were set by insurance companies without approval by the insurance commissioner. Thanks to Republicans' longtime weakness in statewide races, the commissioner, Ricardo Lara, won re election last year by 20 points, despite controversies involving campaign, controvers- campaign contributions from people linked to companies he regulates. But the real problem isn't Mr. Lara, it's the powers vested in his office. Since Proposition 103's passage, California has endured similar problems with all insurance commissioners, including Republicans. Elected commissioners have every incentive to oppose premium hikes. Insurers are reluctant to propose any changes because doing so would trigger an administrative process in which interveners, consumer groups that get reimbursed to advocate for the public in the rate process, rack up legal fees. In 2016, State Farm General Insurance, which provides fire insurance to 20% of the state's homeowners, proposed raising rates by 6.9%. The insurance commissioner at the time, Democrat Dave Jones, instead ordered the company to slash rebates by 7% and rebate consumers $100 million. Small wonder that insurers avoid this process and instead quietly pull back from the market. The Department of Insurance uses a formula to determine rates based partly on a company's revenues. In State Farm's case, the department, along with a group called Consumer Watchdog, calculated what the company's premiums should be based on, the overall revenues of an out-of-state group of State Farm-affiliated companies. Though a state appeals court rejected this method in a harshly worded ruling, a San Diego county court nevertheless awarded consumer watchdog $2.2 million in legal fees for its far-fetched opposition in its role as an intervener. This regulatory environment explains why California insurers can't charge rates that reflect their actual risks. It also shows why there's so little competition in the state's insurance industry. Over the long run, competition keeps rates low. Insurance commissioners can certainly hold premiums down by edict, but the result is a contracting market. Homeowners then have little choice but to buy inadequate policies in a government-run marketplace. Proposition 103 isn't the state's only insurance problem. In 2018, Governor Jerry Brown signed a law banning insurance cancellations and non-renewals in wildfire-affected areas for a year after the fires. Mr. Lara continues to force the already overstressed fare plan to offer additional coverage. Such edicts further burden an overextended backup insurance fund. Lawmakers often talk about the need to help consumers and businesses in California's many disaster-prone areas to secure affordable coverage, yet those same lawmakers impose edicts that impair the ability of insurance markets to do so. As a result, insurance may soon join droughts, fires, floods, infrastructure, traffic congestion, homelessness, and crime among California's many crises and let's do pampered pets live in doggy mansions dine on Tiffany Bowles. Robert Timmers went all-out adding a contemporary style house on his property in Thailand. White with chic black trim, the two-story air-conditioned abode has security cameras smart lighting, and a sliding door to the porch. Mr. Timmers would have added a swimming pool too, but his wife objected. Her reasoning? It seemed unnecessary for the home's intended occupants, the couple's five dogs. The roughly 10-foot-high canine mansion was designed and installed as a relaxing space for the couple's pups and sits in the backyard of and matches the Timmer's own home. I wanted to have something that looks cool, said Mr. Timmer's. I love it so much. Pets these days are living more luxurious lives than ever as humans increasingly pour money into making their properties fetching for non-human family members. The rub? Sometimes the pets don't dig it. I have to be honest, my dogs never set foot in the house, said Mr. Timmers, who spent about $10,000 on it. They just don't like it. Nowadays, the mini house mostly sits empty. It has everything, he adds, just no dogs. Moreover, all these swanky, special-made pet amenities inevitably have a shorter shelf life than those for humans. We're going to customize our homes to our pet, We have to realize that there will come a time when it might not be relevant or we want to change it out, said HGTV personality Jasmine Roth, known for creating pet nooks for clients. Ms. Roth experienced this recently with her death of Tiger, her chihuahua. She had built little Tiger a nook under the stairs, complete with plaid wallpaper and vintage mirrors. I wish I had recorded the call when my wallpaper installer arrived, arrived. Miss Rith Roth recalls. At first he couldn't find the space he'd been hired to wallpaper. I was like look down. The door was so tiny the installer could barely fit inside, though he eventually squeezed in. Now with Tiger Gone, the only occupant of the pet nook is Miss Roth's toddler daughter, who uses it as a fairy cave. Social media has helped popularize deluxe pet items, says Sarah Pijuan of Los Angeles-based Pijuan Design Workplace, which makes mid-century modern dog houses costing from $3,750 to $5,000. The company also creates custom dog houses for clients one for a family in London, was designed to look like a Japanese tea house. Paris Hilton pooches have enjoyed an air-conditioned two-story Spanish-style villa known as Doggy Mansion and sporting a chandelier and a balcony with wrought iron railing, according to her Instagram feed. She says that was at her old home and she no longer lives there. Doug the Pug is a lovable pooch whose penchant for wearing elaborate costumes has earned him over one billion viewers across social media platforms. At the Nashville, Tennessee home, Doug shares with his owners, Leslie Mosier and Rob Schinelli, the Pug has his own 15-foot closet for his outfits, including tiny cowboy hats, cashmere sweaters, a rainbow of sunglasses, custom harnesses from London, and a boat skins leather jacket. For the longest time, we had giant bins, recalled Ms. Mosier. If we needed to find an outfit, it was horrible. She tapped the organizing company The Home Edit to make Doug a supersized closet, and now Doug's clothes are organized by categories such as athleisure and bath time. It's way bigger than my closet, notes Ms. Mosier, Doug's full-time career manager. You walk downstairs and you're like, whoa. Among other perks, Doug only drinks purified water at home, she says, and routinely sees a canine herbalist and acupuncturist. Now a cat who holds the Guinness World Record for the cat with the most Instagram followers is a rescue who lives with owners Barisiri Methachapapan and Shannon Ellis, along with five other cats and a dog. The couple's house in California sports more than ten cat trees and a cat wall mounted with feline lounging perches. Yet Nala yawns at the accoutrements provided by her staff. She prefers to sleep in a cardboard box. The country's most pampered pets surely include those belonging to Lisa Vanderpump, the restaurateur and former star of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. At their estate, Ms. Vanderpump and her husband, Ken Todd, have a menagerie including six dogs, four swans, and two miniature horses. One of their pomeranians, Puffy, is always natalie dressed with Ralph Lauren cashmere turtlenecks, and fluffy feather Maxbone dog sweaters, Miss Vanderpump says. Puffy wears pajamas at night. Miss Vanderpump, who was also co-founder of the Vanderpump Dog Foundation, said it is important for her that amenities for her dogs fit in aesthetically with the decor of her home. Hence, her dog beds in a dusky pink hue from the brand Human which retail for $375 each. The beds come with velvet headboards, mattresses, tiny pillows, and 400 thread count fitted sheets. It looks really cute, she says. Plus, I don't want them sitting in a dirty bed, so to just change the seats is just great. Pet Stairs from Le Pet Luxe, retail price $338 help her dogs climb in and out of her bed. Her pups eat human food, she says, usually poached salmon or organic chicken out of turquoise blue bowls from Tiffany and Company. That is just insight. Several years ago, the couple adopted miniature horses named Diamonds and Rosé and set them up in the backyard in a pink house with gray trim built by luxury real estate developer Mohammed Hadid, a friend of the couple's. When Rosé died, a heartbroken Ms. Vanderpump got another miniature horse, Velvety, to keep Diamonds company, but there was an adjustment period at the beginning where they fought for control. After kicks were exchanged, the couple doubled the size of the horse house to give the roomies some space. On Washington's Vashon Island, Linda Hatfield decided to build a catio, or outdoor cat enclosure, after her cat, Watson, dragged in one too many rats. She enlisted Cynthia Chomos of Seattle-based Catio Spaces to build a 14-foot L-shaped structure off the kitchen, with the same cedar trim and striped awnings as the rest of the house otherwise it just wouldn't fit says miss hatfield who spent about 20000 dollars on the structure while miss hatfield's four cats enjoy the catio all hasn't gone exactly to plan when she adopted boris a nearly 20 pound maine coon he was too tall he was banging his head on the roof she says so she asked miss chomos to elevate her roof and fergus her scottish fold learned how to open doors, a trick he taught Boris. Ms. Hatfield's solution didn't require a big budget, just a bungee cord to secure the door. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.